Hello and welcome to the Thriving Three Counties podcast with me, Dan Barker. Conversations with inspiring business people throughout the three counties of Herefordshire, Worcestershire and Gloucestershire. And now it's time for today's episode. I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, hello and welcome to this episode of the Thriving Three Counties podcast. I'm Dan Barker and I'm here in the studio with today's guest. Uh, just before we get started with our recording, I have a, a, a small announcement. You will know by now about the upcoming event in Malvern, where I'll be interviewing guests for the podcast in front of a live audience. It's part of the Malvern Festival of Innovation and taking place on the afternoon of Wednesday the 6th of October at the Coach House Theatre. If you'd like to join us as part of the audience, it's free to attend, but places are limited, so you'll need to register in advance. If you go to ttc.festival-innovation.com, which is a custom link for the podcast, that'll take you to the booking page, and I'll pop that in the show notes. And the festival itself runs from the 4th to 9th of October, so check out some of the other events while you're on the website as well. Okay, on to today's guest. He owned and ran a gift business here in Ledbury for around 30 years, which in the 1990s was turning over about £3.5 million a year. Some of that success was due to the fact he designed a product that sold 8.5 million units and uh, really helped to establish the company. He says that in spite of everything, he was guilty of working in the business and not on the business. And the business was sold in the early 2000s and he went back, in inverted commas, to becoming a studio potter. After handing the pottery business to a young potter who'd worked with him for a few years in 2016, he now makes furniture and guitars, going to a luthier and a furniture making to hone his skills. He's also my landlord here at the studio, and I'm very lucky to count him as a friend and a mentor, as he's been extremely supportive to me over the last five years, and I've tried to as I've tried to build my business and change careers. He is Stuart Houghton. You all right, Stuart? Hello. <laughs> Lovely to be here. <laughs> Waiting for the grilling. <laughs> You'll be fine. Um, your website, stuarthoughton.co.uk, if people want to see your work and things. Yes, I'm sorry to say that there are some fabulous pictures by you, Dan, and... Uh, but also to add that it's very out of date. Uh, as a techo, I would score nil out of ten. <laughs> oh, well. well, people can go there and have a look at uh, what you get up to They'd these be very days. Welcome. Yeah, cool. So, um, yeah, I mean, like I said in the intro, first of all, like I think I want to say thank you publicly for all your support over the last few years with uh, helping me get up and running with stuff. <laughs> well, you're very welcome. And certainly I feel, you know, 74 this year coming and um, I recently went to my original mentor's funeral I started in 1968 and he recently died at 97 right. and gave me a leg up and I always think young people could do with some early support sometimes it's financial but sometimes it's just a mentor and I'd always recommend um, if you can grab a couple of mentors that you can go and have a drink with that aren't involved in your business, I always found that very useful. So seeing yeah. young people develop a successful business is, I think when you're in your twilight years, it gives, <laughs> you, gives you a lot of satisfaction. Yeah, yeah I know. Well, I, I appreciate it and uh, it's been very helpful. So uh, uh, we'll keep going. <laughs> 
But um, yeah, okay. So we're sitting here in 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 the studio, which was part of your factory yeah, back in the day. So yeah, so. one of my. Uh, well, I think we had about fourteen thousand square feet. Partly, uh, we had a gallery um, selling fine crafts, and then we were manufacturing. I'd call them desktop executive gifts. A bit of a dated word, maybe, but we exported all over the world, and I think at our peak peak had about 60 or 80 people working wow. mainly full-time for us yeah yeah pretty big so so yeah take us back then to the uh, the start and and, <laughs> and college and how you got into all of that well I love my school I went to a technical school and I really adored being doing A-levels I did A-level yeah. pottery I did metalwork I did woodwork and engineering drawing I was thinking I'd become a teacher and then decided I'd go and train at an art school doing ceramics. So trained as a studio potter. And then just after I left college, I had a small exhibition where I'd made a few bits of furniture and pots. I took some orders and then I probably um, had an interview with the, the, the then Birmingham Post arts editor where I was probably a bit sort of... Um, bit too frank about people saying well done you know you're a young person I hope you do well but actually what I needed was some financial help and a lot of support you know coming out of art college when business studies was never discussed you know what you do in the future right. and this was the really start and this guy Jeff Waller in the 60s rang me and said there's a little business in the jewelry quarter for sale we went to have a look at it. I said, Jeff, you know, my dad is a factory worker. I have no money. I've just finished art college. <laughs> no debt, by the way. That was a great start. No fees. And I yeah. got a grant because my parents were fairly poor. And Jeff said, don't worry about the money. Anyway, the outcome of it was he lent me £1,500, which now probably doesn't sound very much. But two years after that initial loan to buy this little business, I bought my first George and Terrace house for £2,250, <laughs> so it puts that amount of money. And this guy giving me the leg up said, there's no interest and just pay me back when you've made the money. All he did was did the accounts for us. Wow. And obviously that was 50 plus years ago and he's just recently passed away at 97, I think he was. And I never forget that initial leg up. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's incredible, isn't it? Like. Uh I, I can, yeah, I, I think personally I'd love to get to that stage where you can help people like that and yeah. just say, yeah, here you go, like, you, like you've done, just, you know. I think it just is so nice to think, and as you, if you do well, that you can pass some of that experience on, and yeah, um, yeah. that does give you a lot of satisfaction, I think. So, I mean, how did you sort of know at that stage that that's what you needed? Because, like, a lot of people going through art college would kind of, then go on to, you know, maybe make make some pots and start, you know, start a small pottery that way. But whereas you sort of started more of a business straight away. I think I, I, I understood I was a maker and the art side was slightly secondary. So when I trained as a potter, I was training as a studio potter. I like making production. And I think with my experience um, at school, loving the metalwork side, you know, to a good A-level standard, he has some good engineering teachers. Buying this small business that made 
probably what one would call re dreadful reproduction Victoriana <laughs> gifts. Um, it was the ignorance that helped me buy it, really, because I thought, oh, I'll go in there and I'll redesign everything and I'll go to the customers that we've got hmm. and away we go. But, of course, when I did de redesign some quite what I call modern 60s, 70s, acrylic, book stands, bookends, various things, took them to people that had been buying the Victoriana giftware, ashtrays and horse brasses. Of course, they actually hated the stuff. <laughs> so that was a shock to me. So it did take a lot to get off the ground. But I did have a small workshop where it was a very nice little workshop, detached with a little bit of a garden and, a, and stuff. And I think the rent was about four pounds something a month. So, you know, it all goes back to, um, I suppose, pre-inflation and trying to... And you've got to have the enthusiasm. I think I was always workaholic, and to some extent I always am now. I've got to keep making. I could never see myself retiring, you know, yeah. probably keel over at the bench, really. <laughs> Yeah, so was that business, was that just you running it then? Or it was, I was virtually a one-man band for a long time. Yeah. And uh, I always remember the name of the business was called George Tibbins and Son Limited. And it was started in 1845 oh, wow. by the grandfather of the old man that we bought this little business from. Right. You know, and I think no different to today, one-man businesses are probably unsaleable. Um, yeah. So if you're in if you're in business to make money, I think you develop ideas, you develop the business, and you sell it on. Probably banks today, and I'm not very in touch with banks, but would say if you don't have an exit plan, we're not going to fund you. Mm -hmm. And uh, partly I can understand that I think because so many businesses develop to a good size and then the owner gets tired and the owner gets old and wonders what the hell they're going to do with it. A very difficult issue for so many businesses, particularly in and around Lebury, in country areas, I think. Yeah, I suppose, like you say, if they're one-man bands and they're completely reliant on the owner, then there's no value in it to anyone yeah. else, is there? Yeah. I think if, 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 a, if, a, if a small business is totally reliant on the owner's skills people get so frightened because, you know, you say, well, I'll stay on and train people up, but it is not the same. You know, you have to have a team that people are buying and a business with a, a reasonable amount of size to it that can be further developed. Mm. Yeah, yeah, okay. So uh, so you, you came in, you redesigned everything, no one wanted them. What, <laughs> what did you do? I, th I think there were lots of things happening. I was just... a you know, I was so determined I was going to succeed. I eventually did start selling some nicely designed, all in brass, really, mm -hmm. and not doing any pottery for many, many years. But And I started selling to places like Conran and Heels, and they mm -hmm. were just quite nice boxes and paperweights, quite simple. And that's how I developed. And I also met a very good customer and I think you need one or two when you're in businesses what I call key customers mm -hmm. that are customers and they're professional customers but all also like to see you doing well and I met a man called Ian Mankin which quite a few of you might know uh, a bit of a, a design guru in the 60s he used to make um, 
first of all, then very narrow leather ties, then beautiful glove leather, not very fashionable now, of course. Mm. Jackets did work for the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the James Bonds. So he had a clothing business and also made very, very beautiful uh, attache cases. Mm -hmm. We met up. He'd been buying some little brass pieces from George Tibbins and Son Limited. He rang me and said, you're the new owner. I'd like to come up and see you. Where are you, you know, and visited and realized I was young, an art student and gave us quite a lot of work. And I helped him design new brass items. So that was the kickstart between dumping the Victoriana repro brassware and moving into working with somebody that was a designer and was selling internationally to all the best stores around the world, particularly in America. And he was happy to introduce me to some of those stores with my new range of desktop gifts. Okay, so that's like, I suppose that kind of answers the question of what you got for that 1500 quid then, because that was one of the contacts, right? I think so. And I think also it was the start because there was some machinery there and there were suppliers and, you know, and we maintained some of the suppliers for 20, 30 years, you know, mm-hmm. metal polishers, metal platers, metal stampers. But um, this, I suppose the real change was, and we used to produce a little brochure we started selling in the UK, but the change came when I designed a little clip-on bookmark mm-hmm. and the bookmark had a little alphabet on the top and so the whole bookmark i think we used to sell between 75p and one pound 50 trade price mm-hmm. and um this bookmark just took off and we were probably went from doing 150,000 a year to 500,000 to 800,000 to one and a half million to two million all self-funded and um, it was just at a time in the 70s early 80s that the gift the whole gift business was booming and then we picked up distributors around the world and on top of that we not only had a standard range but it was at the time when corporate gifts were really big Mm -hmm. things like British Airways Harrods Concord who some of you will remember um, so these bookmarks, we used to stamp the, the Concord plane on the front or the Harrods building stamped in the bookmark. Right, yeah. And it was a phenomenal success. In fact, on top <laughs> of our staff in Ledbury, we had, I think, half of the Ledbury outworkers, you know, we had about 30 or 40 people working at home, mainly um, ladies with families mm-hmm. who would... Um, pack the bookmarks while they were watching the TV. And, right. you know, we always tried to pay people good wages. And so that we always had a queue of good people that did a good job. Yeah. And we controlled our costs because we used to pay them each. So we knew exactly what everything cost. There was nothing complicated about it. Yeah. And it did transform the business from being a one, two man band into very quickly building this factory where we sat now. Mm-hmm. and expanding quite a lot in library. Right, okay, okay. So at the beginning you said like when you took on that business that you, you had a real determination to succeed. What, what was driving that, do you reckon? I think 
I think the fact that I thought I'd suddenly was in a, a swamp full of crocodiles and if I didn't get my arse into gear and really work hard, I was going to be still in the swamp of crocodiles. <laughs> I got this loan, um, yeah. although I'm sure if I'd have failed, there'd have been no pressure to pay it back. But um, I think it was a determination. And it was interesting, I used to go into the jewellery quarter in Birmingham and I'd go to a polisher and a plater. And you've got to remember, I was 21. I was an art student. No way was I ever a business person. Mm. And the guy would say, well, come on, Stuart. You know, I'd be moaning I was making no money. But a plater guy said to me once, well, you'll never make any money unless you employ two or three people. That's your minimum. Because right. then you'd be making a little bit out of what they're doing every week. On your own, it's very, very difficult. And that was a good tip, you know, a right. good tip. So you just gradually started learning bits and bobs as you went along. Yes, really. I think yeah. so. I think the other difference between now and then in the 60s, 70s, late 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s really, is that we only in 40 years had two bank managers. Right. And the first bank manager, interestingly, was uh, asked to leave by, um, I won't mention the bank, but asked to leave because he was a bit left-wing, used to visit Russia, was a great jazz pianist, and used to come down and play, play to our kids and to myself in our house great bank manager, he was asked to leave. He then introduced me to a man in Hereford, same bank, and the guy, the, both of them were brilliant. And you could pick up the telephone. They knew I was doing well. They knew I had money in my current account, mm. you know. And if I said, well, I've got a bit of land because I want to build a factory, we're desperate for space, we want to buy another factory, we want to buy this, buy that, you'd have a telephone conversation You'll have built up a rapport. I mean, the Hereford guy would come to Ledbury on a, a couple of times a year. I'd take him out, mm. only a simple lunch, <clears> nothing <throat> fancy. He'd come up to the NEC where we used to exhibit. He, could, he knew the business inside out. He knew that because we were in the gift business, um, July, uh, July, August through to November was absolutely booming where we could be doing three quarters of our turnover, obviously, because <laughs> we only sold trade. Yeah. And then in the rest of the year, you were more ticking over. So he knew the business inside out. And I'd say, I need 60,000 to buy a new unit, but I only need it for about 18 months. And he'd say, okay, next time I'm in Lebri, I'll come and have a look at it, but I'll mark it on the card and yet yeah, just go ahead. <laughs> Nowadays, that would never happen. No, they want no. fees to talk to, they want fees to come out. Everything's box ticking. And I don't think it's done young businesses any good. Right, yeah, yeah. So how do you know sort of like when to borrow that money to do that? Because, like, I mean, I, I've sort of pretty much shied away from borrowing money, really, because I'm always thinking, well, what if I can't pay it back or, you know, I can't sort of see into the future. But how do you know as a business when's the right time to borrow money to take that next step? I think the few wealthy people I know only use other people's money and they'll only use it if they know it's going to make money. I think mm -hmm. with myself, and my dad had nothing, you know, my parents were very poor. And I remember at one stage having a uh, borrowings and overdraft facility of about 400,000. And my, I said, I told my father once, and he absolutely freaked. 
<laughs> but I said, Dad, I'm buying property, and I only bought property that we used. I didn't like right. buying property to rent out. So when we bought the gallery, you know, a large gallery with workshops and design studios, and we moved to Ledbury, which is about 45 years ago, mm. there was uh, something called COSIRA. I think it was Council for Small Businesses in Rural Areas. And they would send somebody in, met up there, and this is the building we'd like to, to, to buy. Mm. The building was £10,250. It needed a lot of spending on it. <laughs> so this chap said, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. And if you employ one person, we'll give you 2%. It was 10% fixed interest. So it probably everybody listening to this was think, my God, 10%. But just <laughs> after, and he said, fill your boots, get as much money off us as you can because the interest rate's going to rocket. And I can tell you within three months, interest rates had gone to 16, 17%. So he obviously knew something I didn't know. <laughs> but we bought the building. And of course, I think in the 60s, 70s, you could buy buildings at a reasonable price. But maybe it wasn't a reasonable price, you know, because, you know, when I went into John Maceville, the local school, and I said to the kids, they were try I was trying to explain inflation, and it was when you could buy a two, little two, three-bedroom terrace in Ledbury for about 40000 mm -hmm. And I said to these kids, and they were quite a mixed bunch of kids, I said, look, it will not be long before you cannot buy a house in Ledbury for £100,000. They mm -hmm. absolutely laughed and thought I was the most stupid individual they've ever met. <laughs> and now, and I, it's, it's all about inflation. I think it's just tougher now because... Most people can't get their hands on the money to right. either develop. I, I developed the business, but I also like not, not, I didn't like paying rent. So I like to own what I'm, I was paying rent in a way because it was always on mortgage. Yeah. But I yeah. like to think every time I pay the rent or the mortgage is actually is coming into my pocket or the company's pocket. Right, okay, gotcha. So is that really the only thing that you would borrow money for then? No, I think we would borrow money for any what we considered successful developments of the business. So what, what would that um, be, for example? Um, well, for us particularly, it would be design and development and tooling. Okay, yeah. And we would put a lot of money back into design because, you know, we were considered fairly innovative in a sort of not in an artistic design way but just making good quality english giftware that people appreciated with mm. a good finish on it yeah mm. we'd also put a lot of money into things like trade shows around the world so that you know quite often we'd have to borrow you know if we had a new trade stand it might cost twenty thousand thirty thousand forty thousand right yeah. you know so cer certainly we but we'd be doing it quite often on a flexible overdraft of perhaps 200, 250,000. Yeah. I'm not sure that the bank, they want so much now, you know, for everything. I don't know whether that's possible anymore. Yeah, but, but yeah, I mean, it's still, so, so you take that, you know, you take that risk, obviously, you borrow the money to go and do the trade show, but you must have a reasonable level of confidence that that trade show is going to pay off <laughs> i think you, you 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 either have confidence or, or 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 foolishness you know i think uh somebody said to me once look if you owe the bank a couple of hundred or a couple of thousand or whatever mm. you're in a bit of trouble because you know they could stop your overdraft tomorrow if you owe the bank half a million 
they're in a bit of trouble because they don't want to close you down to it. <laughs> they want to work with you to make it work. And I suppose there was a little bit of that, you know. But of course, you know, the banks were, even then, they were quite clever because everything I owned and everything I bought was all personally guaranteed, although we were a limited company, you know, when I borrowed the money for buildings, or they gave, they gave me my first house mortgage because I was self-employed. I couldn't, um, I couldn't um, get a mortgage. Mm. And uh, again, this is about personal contact. I'm not even sure bank managers exist anymore. And some people yeah, listening yeah. to this will probably totally disagree with me. But, uh, <laughs> okay. Not as I knew them anyway. Yeah. So what what made you decide on Ledbury when you moved the business down from Birmingham? A couple of things, really. A, my parents never came from Birmingham. My mother was Welsh and my father was a country boy. So... Whilst I went to school in, in, in um, Birmingham, I don't think my parents, like I didn't have cousins or aunts or uncles. It was, there, was, mm. there wasn't the, the pull of all of that. Um, I, ob I obviously took, took from my father the love of the countryside, but also, um, again, back to lucky contacts, you know, and you need them. Um, an architect friend of mine said, there's a house by the time I was about 23, I'd bought, I'd bought that first house for 2250. Then I bought a gallery on the edge of Brum, um, and I'd sold the first house, and, and it was, you know, the prices were going up. I then sold the little workshop eventually in Birmingham, which I bought. I bought the workshop for 1400 pounds, mm -hmm. and then I sold it for 11,000 pounds, well. and. Um, I bought the gallery in Levy, but before that, my friend said there's a there's a nice house with an acre of ground in Wellington Heath, which is just outside Lebury, um, with a sort of semi-derelict house shed on it, mm. and it didn't get to the auction reserve of 3,000. So I went to the chap who owned it and said, uh, it didn't get the reserve, I'd like to buy it. He said, well, it never got the reserve. I said, well, how much would you like? He said, 5,000. I said, okay. So that was five thousand pounds. So slightly different to today again. Yeah. Okay. So that that's why that I was the start. To... The attraction of Lebri Lebri was the forty years ago. Lebri was certainly the very poor um, neighbour of Malvern. You know, whereas right. Lebri in the last twenty years, you know, you've seen property go skyward, and I think it's surviving all the issues with COVID and stuff. And you know, it's a very attractive town. And I think it's actually done well through difficult times. Okay, so it was more a sort of dis decision based on you found a nice house, yeah, and so you moved uh, the business down. And there. and and the old Barrett Browning, um, uh, uh, the Biddulph, um Gallery was the old um, school to teach ladies how to do um, ironing. It was called the Domestic Science School. Right. And the Biddulphs had been empty for ages and. Uh, and um, that's where you had that's the gallery, where we, yeah. That's where we had the gallery, but there right. was loads of room, and we had the workshops at the back mm -hmm. and design studios and offices upstairs. Right, and, gotcha. yeah. I mean, we grew out of it quickly once a bookmark rocketed off. You yeah. know. <laughs> we were desperate for workshop space, absolutely desperate. Couldn't find <laughs> anywhere in Libya, it was so difficult. Yeah, yeah. And so that's why we ended up buying lots of little units and bodging a piece at the back, you know. Right, yeah, and yeah. Uh, you know, probably as an ex-archient, I've never been in. I've careful what I say now, but perhaps the uh, 
the, the Libri Mafia, which is certainly in those days, a few people probably owned a lot of the land, you know, and I wasn't right. in that club. So, you know, I was certainly seen as a bit of a cranky art student. My <laughs> art student friends, of course, saw me as this horrible industrialist. So I could never win. <laughs> no friends anyway. Yeah, no friends. <laughs> Yeah, what, did they see you as kind of selling out? Well, yes, because, you know, I, I always say to people, you know, you need to make a living, you know, it's no yeah. good being totally precious. I suppose fine artists can continue to be precious, and if you've got a, a big name, you, you, you'll um, sell. But um, mm. I didn't want to be hungry. My dad was hungry. My dad worked hard all his life for nothing, and I didn't want that route, you know. Right. You'd seen that and I'd seen realized. that. I'd seen how badly my father was treated in his factory. You know, I had a brother who died at 17 and I had to go to my dad's factory, which was a piecework metal factory. And I remember him coming around the corner and he was wet with sweat. And I thought, nobody who works for me is going to be treated like this. And I'm not going to be like this, you know. Mm. So there was a real determination to, I suppose you're saying, move out of your initial background really mm, mm, yeah not an easy thing to do though no is it? no very difficult <laughs> so um when you took on that business and you know and got started i suppose one of the things you had to learn pretty quickly which i'm guessing you weren't taught and had no experience on would be like the selling part of it jolly difficult really i i think you know you're talking you you're talking pre-computers you're talking pre almost everything you're talking historic times where the you know the calculator was a massive box with an arm that came down every time you had to <laughs> clonk and add things up talking in days of purchase tax which went up and down like a yo-yo right. and it wasn't always easy times but because i came in with a niche of um, new design which i think in the 70s there was really just a lag of 50s 60s wartime you know, and somebody coming in with fresh ideas, there was a buoyancy, and certainly in the 60s, you know, your you famous people like your Mary Quants, but certainly um, mid-late 60s when they built the big NEC and they had Frankfurt and New York. You know, somebody showing good products with a little bit of finish and design content could do quite well, could do quite right. well, I think. But yeah. you still had to go out and sell. I mean, you had to, like, pick up the phone or go yeah. and see people. The, the, the way I was always a rubbish salesman, and uh, I, I would be dragged out to the NEC and to Frankfurt or wherever it was and saying, oh, this is... Because we changed the name from George Tibbins and Son Limited to Stuart Houghton Limited, but I, I sometimes wish I'd have kept George Tibbins and Son Limited. <laughs> but my salespeople say... Yeah, on a stand, they'd say, oh, this is the Stuart Houghton. And then people would say to me, do you make all these bookmarks yourself? And I thought, oh, I can't say, you know, they, I think people thought that I would cut each one out by hand, you know. Because <laughs> a lot of people have not a clue how, how anything is made. Oh, so, yeah. But how we built up the UK was, again, down to lucky contacts. The gift business often worked with sales agents. And for many, many years... We never paid a salesman. Right. And our most yeah. successful years was when we didn't have salespeople employed. Right. You know, because they always want to know what car they have, what this they have, you know, et cetera, et cetera. 
With a sales agent, we just paid, uh, in the UK, for example, we would pay a straight 12.5% commission on trade price. Okay. And back in the really high flying 70s, 80s, 90s, we might have had six or eight agents covering the UK. Mm -hmm. And the most successful might earn from us alone, and they could be an agent for another couple of companies, you couldn't control it. Mm. But from us alone, they might have earned 40 to 50,000 pounds. Right, okay. Okay, they've got the travel expenses, etc. but very successful. A good agent could earn a lot of money. Okay. And then when it came to worldwide selling, we chose a distributor for each country. And we'd either do that by showing a small, have a small stand in New York, but the NEC and Frankfurt were very, very popular places for exporting. Mm -hmm. So you'd have people come to you from Japan, Germany, France, America, etc., saying, I love this product, what are your distribution prices? So you'd have a trade price mm-hmm. of five pounds, mm-hmm. which then it would might be retail 10 or 12 pounds, but they, a distributor would want something like 30 to 40% of your UK trade price. Right, so in, okay. But in exchange, they'd buy uh, uh, volume. So okay, they got yeah. the very best price, but they'd get a big volume. And I can remember one more than one occasion shipping from the, the workshop just down here, 100,000, 150,000 bookmarks in one <laughs> shipment, you know, that might only be getting a pound for it, but a lot of money. Big volume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Volume. Okay. okay. Took all the work of hassle, trade shows abroad, you know. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. So then they're really going out and doing yeah. the selling after that. Yeah. Well, no internet, so you, you produce a brochure, full-colour brochure every year. Yeah. We had our own little design studio, we had all the equipment, and then I'd rent a, a, a photographer mm-hmm. for a week or two and say, and we'd have a graphic designer, a friendly one local, I'm sorry, right, mm-hmm. that's what we're trying to do. And um, that's how we did it, really. You get through it all. Yeah. All right, okay. <laughs> so uh, when you sent me your bio and stuff over, oh. you said in there, like, that you you felt you worked in the business too much rather than on it, but with sort of 60 to 80 employees, what do you mean? (laughs) I think if if I had the time over again, even from the very start, and probably more importantly, um, I would make sure I stopped and sort of just thought about what I was doing, but probably not on my own. It's going back to finding mentors that probably are nothing to do with your business, but that you could just chew over the, you know, what's going on and where you think, you know, you might be expanding to or what you're doing at the moment. Because other people, particularly if they're experienced, it doesn't matter what field they're in, they can often see things that you can't see. Mm -hmm. And I think... It's very easy, and I am a scurrier. I, you know, I was a scurrier. I tend to think I'm a little bit more of a better long-term planner now. So it was all focused, got to get this done today, shutting your mind to everything else. And I think somebody who develops a good business always has the strategy in mind, you know. Mm-hmm. You look at somebody like uh, Will Chase, who's a Herefordshire business person, 
he appears to come up with good ideas, but it'll always be a plan. Mm-hmm. You know, the Tyrrell, what's, going to, what's he going to do with the making crisps? Eventually he'll sell it. What's yeah. he going to do with vodka? Eventually sell it to Diageo and all that sort of stuff. So yeah. maybe with me, making the big money doesn't drive me, and it certainly doesn't drive me now, right. you know. And I don't think it's... I think I was always excited to be successful yeah. in the sense of it was lovely employing people and part of a team and everything. But just having money in the bank never, ever excited me. And I right. suppose maybe that goes back to how I borrowed 250000 or 500000 <laughs> It didn't mean a lot it didn't to mean me. Anything. You know? yeah, okay. I never had anything to start. I've never had a job. Yeah, so yeah. I never had a salary thing. Oh, my God, I'm not going to miss this salary, you know. I never have had a job, so I've never had anything to miss. So you're all by the seat of your pants. That's interesting, you know? actually, yeah, because mm-hmm. I suppose if you didn't have a salary, like if, if you have a salary, and I suppose back then, I don't know what a salary would be, like, what, a, a thousand, two thousand a year or something like that. It certainly was, in, in and certainly when I left art college, I was doing a little bit of part-time teaching just to eat. Yeah. And in fact, I was married as an art student, so, you know, there are those implications. Um, I was teaching a bit, and I was probably earning between five hundred and a thousand pounds a year. Yeah, and that's when I managed to borrow the two thousand two hundred and fifty pounds to buy my house. Yeah, and that's just as the business was getting off the ground. I think in the in the um, first year we had it, we did just short of a hundred thousand, and we thought it was an amazing. But we made no profit. We were just yeah. being crackers and doing anything that people asked at, at any price. Not yes, the easiest thing in the world to be a busy fool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But I, I suppose, like you know, nowadays, if you had a salary that was like, say, it was like thirty grand salary or something, and then you go into business, you leave your job and you go into business, and you're looking at borrowing, you know, like you said, two hundred and fifty thousand pounds or something, you're probably comparing that to your salary in a way, aren't you, somewhere in your head? And yes, that possibly I think makes so. it more scary. No, and I think it's scary because you're losing the security. The thing when you start on your own, you don't quite know what's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah. And so, however good you are, and I'll always say to people, you can be fabulous, but if people don't know you're fabulous, they won't use you. There aren't people out there saying... Oh, you're a fantastic photographer. I think I think I'll see if I can track down Dan Barker because they don't. Unless you tell them and mm. it's out there and you're doing like you're very good at all the the marketing. But unless you tell them, and I say to all young people, it's no good sitting in your workshop with beautiful product, mm. you know, because nobody comes to your workshop. Very different now with the internet and everything. Mm. And if you have a very good website, you've got to do the marketing and. I, I'm so non-websitey. I do answer any emails if anybody like to email me. I will answer those. <laughs> but my IT skills, and Neil, I've never really had it because in the 60s there were no computers. We always were the first to put in computers at work. I always mm. loved to be the first, but right. I never touched them. I always had staff. It was a big mistake. I should have. Well, the two things I never everything. touched were computers and accounts. Right. Two big mistakes, you know, particularly as you expand 
you must be able to control your money and know where your money is. I just was totally disinterested. When you say you didn't look, what, you just didn't look at it at all? Well, I had staff that would give me the figures and everything, but I wasn't ever very excited. You know, I did give a speech for Business Link once at the Metropole uh, Hotel at the NEC. I think it was 600 and odd people. And I remember saying, not many years ago, we were making money hand over fist. We had mm. fantastic products. We were totally understaffed. And I hadn't a clue where we were making it. But now we're so well organised. We're not making the money, but we know exactly why we're not. <laughs> and I think I'd rather have the former than the latter. <laughs> so, yeah, div just developing cash and being excited about it is nice, you know. I, I think you can get too bogged down with uh, the... Yeah. the, the minute of uh, of managing charge a lot do a great price and the rest looks after itself right, i mean different yeah. with photography because you're not quite the same but i always had this thing when in manufacturing it uh, uh, if we could sell at four times the cost of material so if we were making a, a bookmark and it cost 50p in material assume that it's cost 50p in labor assume that you've got uh, sorry 50p material 50p labor 50p overheads and 50p profit. So four times your cost of material. And, you know, people did all the fancy costings. But if you could work on that or thereabouts, you knew after a while the gut feeling there's going to be money in the bank. Right, yeah, yeah. And I would say any salesman I was involved with, I, I can give it away, you know. They, you know <laughs> any, any fool can give it away. But if you're the best at it and you make yourself the best at it, don't sell yourself cheap, you know. Yeah, yeah. Okay. None of you in business now will compete on price alone. Oh, no, nice. no, you can't, can you? I mean, I, I definitely know that from always somebody around the corner. Video, there's, there's someone, you know, I know who they are who will do yeah. things a lot yeah. cheaper. Yeah. And so that's, I mean, that's partly why I've sort of developed the niche and gone into the industrial side of things yeah. because it positions you as a, a specialist in an area rather than just the general yeah. guy that does a bit of everything. But um, and I think just be better and just move on. You know, I mean, when I was trading, the Chinese uh, had started to come to the NEC with the little cameras tucked in, photographing the stuff. And, and uh, you know, within a few months, six months, 12 months, they were copying and it was just... Right. Now, of course, it's five minutes. They can yeah. photograph it on whatever they want on, on their mobiles. And they're fantastic at turning around new product, new tooling. Oh, the speed they work is phenomenal. Yeah, but yeah. it never bothered me. I think because we were so small, mm. you know, the fact that they copied our bookmark and they copied it exactly, they don't even alter the tools, <laughs> never bothered me because we'd sold by then six million. I knew the product was starting to die off, you know. Right, yeah. And people... Our customers were quite loyal to us in those days. I think they're less loyal now, people buy on price. But yeah. I just said, come on, we'll move on. We'll design another bookmark or another, another successful product. Yeah. And yeah. then when they copy that, we design another okay, one. Okay, so you know. kept moving. Yeah, you've just got to... You won't stop it. You won't stop yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And people say, oh, well, sue them, sue them. We did actually sue once or twice in America and Europe where you can yeah. stop it. But forget going over to China and digging yeah. out the manufacturer, you know, and Not finding happen, out where they it? live. And, <laughs> oh, dear. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that was one of the things I was going to say to you. Like, uh, I've noticed how quickly you move on things because I remember, like, downstairs when you changed the configuration round oh, yeah. of the studios down there. And I remember, I think it was, like, on a Monday or something, you said to me, I'm thinking of maybe knocking this wall through. Oh, yeah. And yeah, there was builders yeah. in, like, by Thursday, Friday yeah, yeah. doing it. Well, I do, yeah. And I suppose that's... If you've never had a job, you don't have to cope with the frustrations of uh, time scale. And if you are yeah. the boss, not that I ever acted to serve the boss, but what I said when, if I wanted something done, it all got done, and we all mucked in. I muck in too, but... Yes, and I suppose when I made the transition from the big brass manufacturer, decided to go back to making pots. I love that and work with the young lady who's taken over now. It's doing really well. Mm. And then I had my crisis when I was about 69. I thought, no, I'm going to start wood. And now I have, as you know, downstairs, um, my wood workshop. And mm. I'm enjoying making the classical and acoustic guitars and furniture. And the great thing is I don't sell anything. And that's, I mean, I am so lucky. I wake up every morning thinking, I am such a lucky person, you know. Yeah. And I think of my dad, who died with nothing and worked his socks off all his life, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he but, was contented, but I mean, that's another issue. I think that ability to move fast was sort of contributed to your success over the years. Oh, like, I think you know, so. When you, I, I don't mean like that you mucked in and did it, but I mean, just on like, I had an idea, I'm gonna do it. Because a lot of people, me included, you know, you get an idea and you sit on it for a bit and you're like, oh, oh should I, I shouldn't know. I, should I? Whereas someone like you, it seems to me like you have the idea, bam, done. I think it's much easier once you're a little bit established. If you're literally, as I was for the first, I mean, another thing that one of the platers in the jewelry court said, if you can survive for six years, you'll be fine. Right, <laughs> and I think it was quite—it was quite a good thing, you know. I think once you can survive and get established, you, even if you haven't got a lot of money in the bank, you, your banking experience, you're banking your customers, you're developing. Yeah. Uh, but certainly, if you can get a little bit of reserve in the bank, it gives you the confidence. So, well, if I have, mm. if I had that bit of kit, particularly for you know a photographer, it's if I have that bit of kit, I could really do this job that I haven't been able to do and that you know there's a hole in the mugs. It enables you to develop. If you're in manufacturing, it's I'm going to design a product, I know what I want to do, I can afford the development, the tooling, because I've got some money in the bank or yeah. you know, it's not going to break the bank because I've got work coming in all the time. And that's the danger with a, being a one-man band. You can't develop the business and be out with the customer and do the manufacturing and do the books and do the... Yeah, it's else. too much, isn't it? I know. Something goes. I know, I often think that, you know, like when I started out and it's kind of, it's just me on my own um, doing photography at that time. Yeah. And you're kind of like, well, I can't shoot all week because I've got to do all the other stuff. Yeah. So you end up thinking, well, you can only really shoot for maybe two or three days a week and then you've got to do all your marketing and you... Yeah invoicing and all that side of things yeah. the rest of the time, aren't you? So you, you're really limited on yeah. how much you can actually do. And my, my passion was always making, even when we had lots and lots of people. My happiest days, in fact, in, on this floor here, yeah. were working on the benches. And that we were mainly women 
work for us because I think it was partly the times and it was partly the gift business seemed to be very woman dominated. We were 80% females. Right. But I loved doing the packing and the wrapping. They were so good at it, much better than blokies, you know, when they were counting things. They'd fan 500 pieces of card and just flick their three fingers through it, count it in a flash. And I thought, this is skill I'd never have. <laughs> but, you know, if you're passionate at making, I tended to hate dealing with difficult staff or difficult issues and um, particularly employment and not the employment law so much, but finding good new staff at a senior level, the most difficult thing I found. Really? Yeah. Always could have good staff at what I call the engine level. Yeah. But... You know, it was impossible to find people that were... Do you think that's partly sort of being out in a smaller town or...? I think it's partly that. And it's also partly a problem that I had because I'd started as an art student and I didn't have the skills, you know. I hadn't worked right. for somebody else so, and I hadn't a clue really, you know. Um, always a very tricky thing when you take on staff. Yeah, yeah, you've got to use your gut, and quite mm -hmm. often when things went badly wrong, and they did a few times, mm. I used to go back to when I'd interviewed them, and I always tried to interview them with one or two other people, and I think, oh God, I remember not being quite happy with that, but I thought they'd change, <laughs> and you know, you kick yourself because I suppose a bit like anything, you know, once you commit. It can be expensive mistakes, you know, like it's like designing. Once you you can design on paper, it costs you X. You mm. make a prototype, it costs you two X. Mm. You go into production and you make it wrong, it costs you hundreds of X's. <laughs> yeah. You know, and the deeper you get into it, the harder it is to get out of it. Yeah. yeah I'm sure yeah. that applies to people too. Yeah. Yeah. So as you as you got on through the nineties and everything, did you sort of start to then think about you know your exit plan and never never do? thought about an exit plan, right? Um, and I think that's really why things went quite wrong. You know, we had some difficult personal circumstances. We had a, a daughter that was very poorly for a long time, mm -hmm. and I have six children, so that was quite time consuming. Which you know, and I think anybody. However, I was only successful in a very small way, but I'm convinced every successful business person you see leaves a trail of shrapnel. And I think um, it's very easy um, to just keep ploughing the same furrow, furrow mm -hmm. when you think you're successful, but A, you don't have a, 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 an exit plan, where our business was probably at such a level it, we, I should have sold it, right. but if you've been brought up from it being a nothing, one-man band, we had staff that had been with us a long time, and you think, oh, they'll never get another job. They always get another job, because especially if you've looked after them and mm. helped them and trained them, they're very, very employable. And mm. uh, So I think, it, I think it depends, you know, if you, if you love the passion of making, it's like if you're a photographer, an exit plan is jolly difficult. You know, if, if you're the name and you're... The, you might have two or three staff, but you're the brand, you're the name. Mm. Very difficult to move on, mm. you know, and do you want to move on? You know, I mean, 
I'm lucky now because I can just make things and go and I go, you know, I go and learn things um, because I'm not under the financial strain. Yeah, I don't drive fancy cars and I don't have fancy holidays and I don't have great ambitions for things. So I spend anything I've got on learning and it's a hobby, mm. if you like. I don't know what it is. I don't like using the word hobby because I think, you know, people are quite committed to, you know, seriously learning. And well, yeah, and that was another thing I put in my notes was like your sort of constant learning and development and, you know, that desire to keep keep improving all the time. I think I was probably, like a lot of young people, what young people have is massive amount of enthusiasm and energy. And I think the young people certainly today are much brighter than when I left college and, and school. Um, and of course, I'd gone through a long stage when I'm sure ignorance of how you run a business kept me going, because if you knew everything, you'd cut your throat and you'd stop. <laughs> and also, I think... You, you, there's a passion. There's a passion to keep going, and because uh, you don't know anything else. Yeah, and, and yeah. I think that's the thing. Really. But you, I mean, you, you could have got to like the point, you know, when you were really successful and sort of said, "Well, I, I know everything now. I'll just keep doing what we're doing." But well, I feel like you probably kept trying. And to certainly, and I think when you're younger, you think you know everything. And certainly, you know, now in the last, I suppose since I've not been in a proper business the last 20 years. You know, I've been retired almost 20 years and I'm nearly 74. Certainly during that time, almost every five years, I really, oh God, I don't know anything. I think, used to think I knew everything. And now I'm thinking I don't know anything. So yeah, that is a big shift really. That's a big shift. But yeah. I'm loving the learning and I, it's lovely to see um, to see businesses doing so well and we've got a few very successful little businesses in Lebury, you know and they are the yeah, businesses yeah. that are you know have got people that are interested in design and quality and and that's really nice oh yeah and it's worth mentioning that most of those people used to work for you yeah yeah so that's nice i like that's that, a pretty cool know. thing yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So. perhaps they'd have been nicer to me when if they, you know, if they'd have known how tough it was, it'd have been nicer to me then. <laughs> no, we had a good team, so we had really good times, and and yeah, I mean, and so many of my ex stuff, it's lovely. I walk through Lebanon because you know a lot of people. They say, oh, if you ever start up again, you know, we'll come and work for you. And I'm thinking, God, I'm, I'm just waiting to die, really. So I won't be starting up again. Uh, Excellent. Well, yeah, and I, I suppose the other thing worth mentioning is like the level to which you do things. I mean, like you don't half-ass <laughs> something, do you? Like when you make a, you know, when you learn to do woodwork, it's like, you know, it's at top level. When you learn to do pottery, <laughs> you know, when wow. you do pottery, it's at the top level. I mean, the stuff like these guitars that you're making and everything. I mean, it's it's not like. I don't know. I don't quite know how to say it, but you well, know. Well, you can be polite and say it. he's just total OCD, and uh, no, yeah. <laughs> I don't mean and it, it like absolutely that. Absolutely, is. You I, know. I see it as just doing everything to um, a really high level, and I imagine yeah. that's also what's brought you through and made you successful all the time. I was totally it? driven, and I was driven that our staff should work in nice circumstances, and you can go and talk to my staff. You know, in this factory, if I walked around the factory, which I did do it on a regular basis and worked in it, 
I did expect the light bulbs to be changed, I expected the loose to be clean, and I expected the coffee place to be proper and supply, you know, the drinks supplied and stuff, mm. you know. Right. And people thought, you know, I suppose it's like the site now we're sitting in, you know, we've had all the car parks done. I love it to be clean and tidy. Yeah. And um, I think it's good for the, the tenants for, for their visitors, you know, I think mm. there's, a, there's a thing about, uh, you know, having some sort of standards. That sounds awfully old-fashioned and people are going to shoot me down, I'm sure. But I think to have a standard of operating is very good and, and a reliability where people can see that you have standards that you're straight to deal with, that you're honest. You know, we see too many people in business, I think, that are greedy, not quite honest. <laughs> and you think, mm. It's unusual. The alternative, everything kind of degrades gradually, yeah, I suppose. I think it? so. And I think particularly, I know, I know you always get slippage, and I'm sure you're the same in photography, but in manufacturing, and, and photography is, is artistic manufacturing, really, you know, you start off, you've got to start off at the very pinnacle you can, and you'll have a little bit of slippage, you know, particularly if you're mass-producing and that. Mm. And, you, you know, it's got to be acceptable. You know, I, yeah. I used to say sometimes to our staff, we're making a very good commercial product at a pound, which mm. is the rough trade price our 8 million bookmarks were. Yeah. We're not making a work of art, but it's got to be you know, nicely put together, nicely made. Mm. But it is a commercial product at a pound. Yeah, so the balance yeah. is jolly difficult, you know. <laughs> yeah, especially coming from a sort of creative... Yeah. But industry. I think keeping, you know, I always say, you know, when I look at my tenants, you know, I know if they're going to do well. You can tell. They don't have to be minted in their fancy cars, but you can just tell when you walk in that it feels that somebody cares about the place. Yeah. And my first, I did have a very tiny job working for Hornsey Pottery after my art uh, school days. I went mm. to work for them for eight weeks. Mm. And the chap came from Hornsey Pottery, one of the directors, he said, my tip to all of you, chat about six of us, said, my tip is, if you ever go for a job, see if you can make an excuse to go to the toilet right. and see what the toilets are like. <laughs> and he said, if they've got a canteen, see if you can go and have a cup of coffee or right. a place you can do it. And he said, if they're fabulously clean and tidy, you can bet your life the company's well done. And I know it's a sort of slight quippy, but I'll tell you what, it's absolutely true. Right, mm. to sell how they, how, how they look up, how it's they the do way, things. It's the way everything gets done, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, and also, like you said, you said about you know paying people properly and you always had a line-up of people wanting to work for you. It's the same with you know these premises now, isn't it? Like... You know, it doesn't take you a minute to rent out a unit no. when it becomes available no. because they're in such good. There is always a waiting list, yeah. um, but but you are right, and I think if if you can pay your suppliers quickly, mm -hmm. and it's not always easy, but if you can pay them quickly, you can demand more. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're paying somebody in ninety days, mm -hmm. and you want something done very urgently, they're probably going to pay do it for somebody who's paying in 14 or 30 days. Mm. And I think um, the same with your staff. If you can really stop and think, you can't be over generous because we're all working for the company and it's mm. essential that everybody knows you're working for the company. And the company itself needs to be made stable. Mm -hmm. It isn't, and probably one of my mistakes was, you know, if we'd made a decent profit, 
I'd keep a bit in the business. I'd have a little bit, but the bulk of it I'd distribute amongst the staff. I didn't right. keep enough for um, the rainy day money, you know, and our scale of operating, we should have kept right. a good watch for any difficult trading times or any difficult issues. Gotcha. And my bank manager was always critical of our business. He said, you're the best business I've got at the moment in Herefordshire. This is when I was at a very peak, highly yeah. profitable peak. He said, there's one big problem, it's you. And he was absolutely <laughs> right, it's just you. And if you get run over by a bus, the whole thing will collapse. Okay, so um, that's coming back to what you said about working in the business too yeah. much. You you weren't yeah. you didn't have yeah. like the systems and processes yeah. and in I, place. I see a lot of successful businesses in Herefordshire particularly where the guy who owns it is there all the time. Yeah. Or the right. lady that owns it's all the time. It's too much demand on one person. Yeah, yeah. And that questions the future, I think. Yeah, because like yeah. we were saying earlier, you don't then have a saleable yeah. business. But I think still, be good to your staff, be open with the staff. It's not like the old days, in my opinion. You'd be good to the staff and share the good and the bad times, you know. Mm. Don't be like the old, you know, people in the jewellery quarter where I used to work. You'd see Rolls Royces and Jaguars and all nice new cars mm. and people working in dreadful conditions. The owners and their staff working in real disgusting right. toilets you wouldn't go into. Yeah. And they'd, they'd live in their nice big houses in Solihull, but work was work, so you'd never spend right. a penny. You're mean with everything. That's what just <laughs> generated the money to buy your big house, your your big holidays right, and yeah. your big benefits. Thank goodness, I think most of the time that's gone. Although yeah. there are, I think there are some obscene discrepancies between the rich and the poor, and I think that's sad. I think, and that was very difficult. I think that's quite difficult for me to swallow. I think um, so. I think if you are generous with your staff, you can demand more. It's a two-way thing, mm. you know. And certainly, you, you know, if you're paying a little bit more than other people. Mm. generally you keep them better mm. you know and they'll go the extra mile for you too i think mm. it works both ways yeah and yeah. it certainly works both ways if, if um your staff think you roll the sleeves up the danger yeah. comes when you become a bigger business and you can't and i couldn't leave that alone you know if i mm. came in and they didn't have time to clean the toilets because we were doing a massive export business i'd go and clean the toilets yeah but i'm not sure it was always the right thing to do you know, right. because you know you were micromanaging is a term isn't it and yeah perhaps i was doing too much of that right yeah gotcha gotcha but i still enjoy doing the micromanaging <laughs> yeah well cool thank you very much you're very been, welcome. Uh, very and if anybody very does contact me, I will email them back and more yeah. than happy to. Uh, and if they like to visit the workshop in Lembury, they're always welcome. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know you very to, generously yeah. showed one of my uh, oh, yeah, yeah, friend's yeah. sons around. Yeah, his son was a player and, too, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah, yeah, so no, thanks. Thanks, yeah. uh, Stuart, appreciate your time. And uh, uh, as I said, everything you've done. Well, it's me. a pleasure and very nice to sit so in this far. studio because... I think, I, you know, you are doing so well and it's great. I see you with a member of staff already and it doesn't seem five minutes since, you know, you had a full-time job. Yeah, true. It's Proper close. job, as my dad would say. <laughs> yeah. My dad used to say when I had 50 people, when are you going to get a proper job, son? <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, no, thanks, Stuart. Thank you very much. 
You've been listening to the Thriving Three Counties podcast with me, Dan Barker. You can find links to all the episodes and show notes over at danbarkerstudios.com forward slash podcast. If you've enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show and connect more people in the region. Thank you very much for your time listening. I hope you've enjoyed it and we'll see you next time.